Hopefully you have kept your place in the book of Galatians, and we're looking chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. To this point in our consideration of the book of Galatians, what we've discovered is Paul was a formidable theologian. He was a defender of the faith par excellence. With the skill of a master courtroom attorney, he has woven an argument for his apostleship and therefore the gospel which he preached that is airtight. In contrast to those who had come to the Galatian churches and were preaching that a person was not truly a saved individual, not truly a Christian, if that person did not add to the work of Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel, which is the gospel, is very clear. That the only way that we can be made right with God is by the grace of God. God's unmerited favor. We cannot get right with God by anything which we do. Those who opposed Paul, known as the Judaizers, among these churches in Galatia, they were suggesting that a person needed to be circumcised, if male, in order to be a true follower of Christ. And all those who would hope to be true followers of Jesus would have to add to the work of Christ if they were male or female by observing certain days within the Jewish calendar. The Apostle Paul said, there's nothing you can do. You are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The Apostle Paul seems to be coming out of his head rather than out of his heart to this point. He has no word of commendation for the Galatians. If you know his other writings, in practically every other letter of the Apostle Paul, he begins with some word of of commendation, but not so the Galatians. But when we get to this passage, we see another Paul. It's almost as if another person were writing. We don't see a man who comes across as rather cold and matter-of-fact, but one who comes across as a father would speak in tenderness to his children. Incidentally, Paul says about himself in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that he was the spiritual father of the Corinthians. He would have said the same thing to the churches in Galatia. It was he who brought the gospel to them and he had a tenderness for them. We see some hints of this. They're rather obvious when you begin to think about it. He addresses these believers in Galatia as brothers. And then later on in verse 19, he describes them as little children. The idea of children within a family, toddlers and what we would call preschoolers or children of elementary school age. He addresses them with such tenderness and then he actually compares himself to a mother giving birth and the pains that he has exercised in seeing that they would be born again by the living and abiding Word of God. The Apostle Paul shows his human side in this section that we're looking at today. The Apostle Paul shows his passionate love for the souls of people. So we're in for a treat. One of the commentators I read in preparation for the message 
said that he believes this is the most vulnerable statement that Paul makes in terms of relationships with those whom he was leading spiritually. You may remember last week in verses 1 through 11, we looked at a very simple way to remember what is emphasized in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. First of all, Paul establishes the fact that before we came to Christ, we were slaves. Slaves to the law, that is the keeping of the commandments of God. People before they come to Christ are slaves to the law. They're under bondage, but also slaves to sin because when people become aware of the law, Paul writes in Romans 4.15, if there is no law, no commandments, there is no violation. In other words, the thing which makes us conscious of our having broken the law of God is that we are exposed to the law of God. And then once having broken the law of God and been exposed to the law of God, the result is that we see there's no way we can make ourselves right with God. So what we saw last week is once we were slaves. And then as Paul progresses in the early part of Galatians 4, we saw we became sons by the grace of God. That's wonderful. And daughters, I might add, children of God. And then we didn't spend enough time on the last section, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 together today about the question which Paul raises. Why would you, who are now free, want to go back into slavery by behaving as if you had to keep the law in order to be a true follower of Christ? Now, understand this. Paul would never advise any of us to sin so that grace might abound. He talks about that in Romans 6, if I'm not mistaken. But what he's saying is that our response to our Father in heaven, once we become His children by His adopting us into His family, our response is one of obedience based on our love and gratitude to Him. Well, that's background, but necessary background. And we're going to see three things that distinguish a child of God from a slave. The first thing is this. A child of God is one who knows God. Look at verses 8 and 9. However, at that time, that is, when you were slaves under the law and slaves of sin, you did not know God. You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, are rather to be known by God. Before these people who made up the Galatian churches, and there were several towns, remember, that Paul and his traveling companions went to and preached the gospel. There was Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, among others. They planted churches everywhere they went. People came to faith in Jesus Christ. But before those people received the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, before they came to know God through Jesus Christ, these people did not know God at all. That's what he says in verse 8. You did not know God at all. And remember that most of the people who made up the churches were people who did not come by natural descent from Abraham. They were not what we would call Jews by nationality or race. Rather, they were non-Jews, or Gentiles. They were pagans. And their worship 
was pagan. The thing about mankind that we find wherever we go in the world, even where Christianity is virtually unknown, is that people are by nature worshipers of something they call God. There's this matter of eternity which is built into our hearts and we are oriented toward worshiping, right? And it was true among these Gentiles. In this region of the world, there were people who many times worshipped the zodiac. It's what we call astrology. They would worship the various signs of the zodiac. In Lystra, there was a magnificent temple which had been built to the Greek god Zeus. He was worshipped there. In Iconium, there was a temple which had been built for the mother goddess Zizimini. And I had a hard time saying that. I'm not sure I said it right, but I tried. All right. But nevertheless, this was another one of the pagan gods and goddesses which was worshipped by some of these Galatians before they met Jesus Christ and came to know the one true God. Maybe you remember when Paul found his way to Athens and he went on Mars Hill and there were all kinds of shrines to gods. But there was one shrine for the unknown God. Just in case we don't know who the real God is, we need a shrine for that God if we really don't know Him. We know who that God is. He's the only true God, right? He's the only true God. Add to the fact that they worship the Zodiac and these various members of the Greek pantheon of gods. Add to that that the imperial cult was widespread throughout the Roman Empire. And what I mean by that is whenever a man ascended to the throne and assumed the position of Caesar, that man became a deity, became God. And all over the Roman Empire, people were by law required to offer incense to Caesar, whoever the Caesar was, and to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, we know what happened when people came to know Christ. What was the creed of the first Christians? It was very simple, wasn't it? Jesus Christ is Lord. So these people, before they came to the Lord, they are exactly what Paul describes here in verse 8. They did not know God. They were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. As they would bow before these shrines to worship false gods, gods whom they believed really existed, what they were actually doing as we look at other things which Paul writes, particularly in 1 Corinthians, they were bowing before these false gods and behind those false gods were demonic influences. They were in bondage to those kinds of influences. People without Jesus Christ are people, whether they know it or not, those people are under bondage to the forces of evil in the world. Rousseau, the 18th century French philosopher, by every indication he really did not know the one true God, but he got it right in a simple statement that he makes to introduce one of his more famous works. He said, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. Doesn't that ring true? People are born free. But it doesn't take long for people who are born free to quickly find themselves in chains. 
and their lives are all bound up, and their lives do not express anything that would vaguely resemble freedom and peace and joy. It's because they are serving a God that is no God at all. They are under the influence of the demonic influences in the universe. Well, the good news for these believers in the Galatian church and for us too is that they met Jesus through the preaching of the gospel of peace that Paul brought in the gospel of grace. That's what Paul is saying in the first part of verse 9. Now that you have come to know God, notice he does not say come to know about God. I would venture to say that everyone in this room today knows something about God. You know something that's true about the one true God. But the bottom line question for us is not how much do we know about God? Do we actually know Him? And the knowledge of God in Scripture is always a personal thing. It's a relationship of intimacy with God. The reason I say that is because of the word which is used for know or knowledge. This is a word which is used in both testaments of our Bible to describe the intimacy that a man and woman have in the physical relationship in marriage. It appears first in the book of Genesis chapter 4 where the scripture says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived a son. They knew each other in the most intimate way. They knew each other. We who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and have therefore come to know God because we've embraced Jesus as our Lord, we too are on those kinds of terms with Him. Intimacy is the name of the game when it comes to the knowledge of God. The faith that sets us free is not a matter of how much we know, but whom we know. Do you really know God? Do you really know Him in intimacy? Better still, these people, having met Christ in the preaching of grace, better still, and more importantly for us too, they were known by God. Does that strike you as a bit odd? After having said what Paul says in the beginning of verse 9, now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Have you ever stopped to think that long before God reveals himself to us, he knows us? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, is God speaks to Jeremiah and assigns him the role as being a prophet to the nations. This is what he says to him. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Do you realize that? Before God formed you in your mother's womb, He knew you. In fact, His knowledge of us who know Him predates history because He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Phenomenal, isn't it, to think about? The Apostle Paul himself even makes a similar assertion. If you'll turn back to chapter 1, verse 15, to jog your memory about what we've already learned regarding Paul. In 1.15 he says, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb... Now let me ask you a question about Paul when he was in his mother's womb. 
Did he have any consciousness of God? I doubt it seriously. At what point did he become conscious of God? We don't know. But it was after he was born, but he was set apart from his mother's womb for God's service. God knew Paul just as surely as God knew Jeremiah before either of them was actually born into this world. So the knowledge of us by God is critically important because God reveals himself to those whom he knows. He reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus dialoguing with his apostles the night before he was crucified was approached by Philip, and Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And then Jesus responded by saying, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If we see Jesus, we know the Father, correct? It's in Christ that God reveals himself to us, and before he reveals himself to us, he has to know us. What this tells us is the fact that God knows us, that's more important, frankly, than our knowing him. Jesus himself says, my sheep, talking about us, his followers, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he knows us, too. He knew us before we were born. He knew us before the beginning of time. He had us in mind when he went out of heaven and became one of us to secure our salvation. And he takes the initiative. Do you know your salvation? If you are a person who is right with God, is the work of God from beginning until the end. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, the Bible says, until the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord is involved in our lives. Now let me put you in a scenario that... It's possible you might find yourself in, but you can envision yourself in such a scenario. Let's suppose that you go on a mission trip under the auspices of our church. You're one of the many who goes abroad on a mission trip. And part of your assignment, along with your mission team, is to go and minister to an orphanage in the nation to which you go. And as you walk into this room, it's filled with makeshift cribs, and you hear the sounds of babies. And some are crying and some are just cooing and they're just there. And as you walk by one of the cribs, you catch a glance of the face of a beautiful little infant girl. It's as if her eyes are locked on yours. And you fall in love with her. It was love of first sight. And it comes to mind, I wonder if I could adopt this child. You talk to your spouse who's with you on the trip and you take your spouse with you to that room in that orphanage and you say, do you see what I see in this little child? I think I love her. What do you think? And your spouse says, I think I love her too. And you begin the process and it's a long drawn out process of working toward adoption. You have to go through the auspices of the nation in which this child lives and then you get approval and you come back to the U.S. and you come back to the nation where you saw this little child and you go before the judge and the judge declares that this child is your child legally and you take the child back home. Now let me ask you a question about that little child. Does that little child have any way of knowing 
you as an infant may be able to relate to you a little bit, but does a child really know you? Does a child have the capacity to love you? The child wants to be loved. Every child, we know when we hold children in our arms, children want to be loved. They love to be loved. But they had no choice in the case of this child. That little child had no choice as to whether that child would remain an orphan or be adopted. This is what God did for us. We had no choice. He adopted us to be His children. We saw that earlier in the fourth chapter. This is a great gospel, isn't it? And here is an identifying mark of someone who has transitioned from being a slave to sin, slave under the law, to being a child of God. That person is a person who knows God and is known by God. Perhaps the most basic question you could ever ask yourself today or any other day is, do I really know God? Remembering what Jesus says. Now listen, Jesus says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you think eternal life is important? Do you want eternal life? Well, you have to know God. And you know Him through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. There's no other way to know God except through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is extending Himself to you today in that matter. Here's the second distinguishing mark between a person who once was a slave to sin under the law and is now a child of God. That person enjoys the ministry of the Word of God. That person has a thirst and a hunger for God that is very difficult to satisfy. In other words, you keep coming and you keep coming. If any man is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I was in conversation yesterday with one of the men in our church. He was giving his testimony to a small group of us. I'd asked him to do it. And he told me that after he came to know Jesus, he was an atheist, who became a follower of Christ at the age of 30. A bright man, a hard-living man. He came to know Jesus Christ, and he said, I could not put the Bible down. He said, I read the Bible. He said, I'm OCD, so I started with Genesis. I had to go from the first and read everything before I came back and read it again. He read the Bible three times, he said, in his first year of being a son of God, transitioning from slavery to sonship. This is one of the things that I've noticed about people who really come to Christ. When they first come to know the Lord, they want to read the Bible. Now, if you're here today, you've never had an interest in God's Word. You may have tried to have interest in it, but when you open it, you don't understand anything you read, and you get frustrated in your attempt. That's a sure sign that you don't know God yet, and it's time for you to make that transition from being a person who's a slave to sin and the law to becoming a child of God. And when you do, it's like the lights come on. Now, what is the occasion of Paul's bringing the Word of God to these Galatians? Well, take a look with me, if you will, at verses 1, 4 rather, 12 and following. I beg of you, brothers, become as I, 
for I also have become as you are. Let's stop right there. There's some words which are added by the translators of our Bibles to help make sense of this statement. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul says, I beg of you, and this is a strong kind of pleading. It's a word that's often used in the New Testament to describe prayer. He says, I beg of you, brothers, become as I, for I also as you. Those are the only words that really appear. What's he saying? Become as I am. In other words, become free of the law. Because Paul describes himself in the early part of Galatians as one who was zealous for the ancestral traditions of Judaism, of his ancestors, the laws and all the things associated with the law. He was a zealot for those things. And he was bound up, but then he met Christ and Christ set him free. He set him free. He said, become as I, for I also became as you. He became all things to all men, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in order that he might win them to Christ. This is a good model for our sharing Jesus with people. Never compromise who you are in Christ, but always be looking for common ground that you can find with people who do not yet know God through Christ so that you can be a tool in God's hands to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the occasion of Paul's going to Galatia. Verse 13, look at it. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Paul probably had no inclination to take the gospel to the Galatians. Isn't that interesting? It was a bodily illness which landed him in the presence of these Galatians to whom he preached the gospel of grace and those people, many of them, embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and their lives were radically changed from being a slave into a child of God with all that pertains to being a child of God. Galatia is in what we now know is modern-day Turkey as Paul and his traveling companions made their way along the coast. It was a mosquito coast. It's a region which was known as Pamphylia. Paul possibly, if not probably, contracted malaria. And he and his buddies went northward into the higher climates where there were no mosquitoes so he could recover. And when they got there, what does Paul do? Wherever he goes, what does he do? He preaches Christ, doesn't he? And in preaching Christ, people heard the gospel and they were changed, irrevocably changed. Awesome to think about. And... We don't know what the illness that Paul suffered from was. He pleads with Jesus, it's recorded in 2 Corinthians, for Jesus to take away this thorn in the flesh, probably an illness. And Jesus says, no, 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 end of discussion. He says it to him three times, three requests, three no's, end of discussion. Some say he had malaria and Sometimes the side effects of malaria is that the optic nerve is damaged, and this creates a problem with depth perception. Fields of vision are lost many times. Depth perception goes, as does ability to tell colors within the spectrum of colors and know which color is which. It's possible that this happened. Others say he had epilepsy. That was his problem. 
because of some of the things he says about the visions he has. I think that's highly unlikely. And others just say he simply suffered from malaria, period, without problems with his eyes. And the reason they say that is in verse 15, if you'll look down there, speaking to these people, he said, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. This was a common way of saying in this region of the world at this time in history, when someone said, I will do anything for you, they would say, I would even take out my eyes for you. That's the idea. So there are all kinds of suggestions. I happen to side with those who believe that Paul lost his vision. But, or partially at least, the reason I say that, if you'll turn to the 6th chapter, look at verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. He'd been dictating the letter to a secretary who was writing it down. He gets to the end of the letter, and then he wants to give it authenticity by signing it as his own name. Have you ever seen one who has trouble seeing many times when they're writing, they'll write with larger letters because they want to be able to read it themselves. That's why they do it most of the time. It's not because they're concerned about our seeing and understanding, but because they want to make sure they're writing the letters properly. So Paul had this eye ailment, I think. I believe that's the case. And it was debilitating, and it was also repulsive, evidently, to people who looked at him. They had a hard time looking at him. But the Apostle Paul saw God's hand in the illness, and it was through this illness that the gospel made its way northward. There's a great application for you and me. Do you know that God uses your problems to achieve his purpose in your life and in other people's lives? Do you understand this? This is something that will change your whole perspective on life. Because instead of whining and complaining about our problems, we recognize that God has allowed them. Now, that does not mean that we can't ask God to heal us. Don't mishear what I'm saying. And it does not mean that God in some cases will in fact heal us. But there are many instances in the New Testament as well as the Old where people were sick, they had faith, their faith was met with God's no, as was the case in Paul with regard to this thorn in the flesh. And the Lord says, I've given this to you in order that you might not become proud and also so that I can use you to reach others for Christ. What about Paul's chains when he was a prisoner? He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, is what he says. I'm an ambassador in chains. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. That's the testimony of Paul about his being a prisoner. He had eye problems. He had restrictions on his life. Here was a vagabond who loved to travel the world, and all of a sudden he's confined in a small area in a Roman prison, and he's rejoicing in the Lord. How can a man do that? Well, the same way you and I can, to recognize that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He will use you in your problem. Don't think for a moment that you shouldn't ask God to get you out of some bad situation you're in. Ask Him. But if for some reason He does not remove you, look for the reason that He has placed you in that situation, which is a negative situation. Trust God to know what He's doing 
and watch God glorify himself in your trial. Here's another lesson we learn, the first of which is God uses our problems to achieve his purpose, but we are to receive God's word and the bearer of God's word with warm hospitality. Look at verse 14. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, when they looked at him, as I've mentioned, it was hard to look at him because of whatever was going on in his eyes. It was repulsive for them. You did not despise or loathe. The word translated loathe means spit on. You did not scorn me, nor did you spit on me. What's that all about? It was common practice in this region that if someone had disfigurement in their appearance, what would happen was that people would come and they would actually spit on them. It was legitimate. They saw the displeasure of God being expressed in a person through disfigurement. But they didn't have this response, did they, to Paul? It says, but in the middle of 14, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. The word angel, in its most basic meaning, it sounds like this. Listen to it. In the Greek language, this is the way it sounds. Angelos, los angelos, the city of the angels, angelos. And it's the word which means angel, but its most basic meaning is simply messenger. So let's insert that word. But you receive me as a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Remember what Jesus says to his apostles when he sends them out the first time? It's found in Matthew 10, 40. He said, he who receives you receives me. When we go as ambassadors for Christ, we share Jesus. It's as if Jesus is speaking and working through us. And it was certainly true for Paul. And these Galatians, when they first heard the gospel, they received him as a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. They loved the messenger, but they loved the word the messenger brought even more. And there's something for us to think about. When you are in a position to consider someone to be your pastor, the one thing you should always insist upon above everything else. A lot of people are looking for a church where they can have a good children's ministry. A lot of people are looking for a church where they can have a good youth ministry. A lot of people are looking for a church where they have a good music ministry. Look, that is not the way you look for a church. You look for a church. There's no mention of those things in Scripture, by the way, in the New Testament. You look for a church where there is a person who teaches the Word of God clearly and is insistent upon teaching all the Word of God, and just, just not those hobby horses that he might wish to ride. We are not to choose our leaders based on their appearance. Paul was poor to look at. Their ability. He was not a very good orator, as brilliant as his reasoning was or their personality, or their popularity. These are things that we like about people. These are things that we get first impressions about. But we're to do what? We're to find a man or men who know God and know His Word and rightly divide His Word and share it and feed the flock. John Brown, who was a great leader within the Puritan movement, made this statement. He said, the truly happy Christian society, he's talking about church, the truly happy Christian church has a minister who loves the people, 
and a people who love the minister. Now, he qualifies that last statement. People who love the minister for the truth's sake. In other words, people who love their pastor because he brings them the word of God and he shares the truth with them. The Galatians' hospitality, however, had degenerated into hostility. Why is that so? Well, look at verse 15. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? This is a word which carries with it the idea of self-congratulations. They had received the gospel and they were looking at each other and they said, this is too good to be true. How wonderful it is. We're incredibly blessed. We're satisfied. We're content. And Paul says, where has that gone? It's gone. It was there first. I witnessed it, but now it's gone. And the reason it had gone, he goes on to say, for I bear you witness that if possible, you plucked out your eyes and give them to me. I Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? What had Paul done? He simply told the truth. And the people viewed him as their enemy. Why? Because these false teachers had come into the church. Look at his description of them in 17. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out from me, is really saying, and the true gospel, in order that you may seek them. So, here were these people who had come to know Christ. They moved from slavery into sonship and daughtership. And then after Paul left, these false teachers who were saying, you've got to add something to what Christ has done, worm their way into the fellowship. And gradually, that warm sense of hospitality that these people whom Paul had introduced to Jesus, to whom Paul was a spiritual father, now viewed him as their enemy. Telling the truth is pretty tough, but let me tell you what the Bible says. In Proverbs 27, 6, you know this probably, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but many are the kisses of an enemy. These Judaizers were kissing like crazy. Kissing, kissing, kissing. Buttering these people up, these immature believers. And they were building a case against the Apostle Paul. The truth hurts, doesn't it, sometimes? Not always, but sometimes it does. And so, when the truth is spoken in love, it accomplishes its purpose, but sometimes people react. Now, in the remaining few moments we have, here's the third identifying mark of that person who has transitioned from being a slave to a child of God. First of all, what is it? That person knows God. Do you know God? That person enjoys the ministry of the Word of God. Do you enjoy the ministry of the Word of God? I would suggest most of you do because you come regularly to this place to worship the Lord and listen very patiently and attentively to the teaching of God's Word. Here's the third thing. A child of God has moved from slavery to sin and has been transformed into the likeness of Jesus, or at least is being transformed into that likeness. Verse 18, But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. Let me stop here just a moment. A lot of people have problems with Paul because they think he's an egotist, that he's a person who is a megalomaniac. He loves to draw people to himself, right? And this is what we know about Paul. If we look over in chapter 6, verse 14, we actually read it together in preparation for the Lord's Supper. He says, May it never be that I should boast except in Jesus Christ and his cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows and understands me. In 1 Corinthians 1, he said, Was anybody saved by the Apostle Paul? Was anybody baptized in the name of the Apostle Paul? In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Paul is nothing. So we misunderstand the statement when Paul says, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He's saying, Be free as I am because I'm doing what Jesus says. Get free from the law, is what he's saying. It's for our benefit. In verse 19 he says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He says about himself, Nevertheless, I live, but Christ lives in me. In Galatians 2.20, Christ lived in him. He was one in whom Christ lived. Is Christ being formed in you? The idea of formed... It's a word which means changed in essence, formed in essence. The very character of a person becomes like the character of Christ. It's something that happens gradually. Paul didn't ever say, I've arrived spiritually. What he does say, however, in the book of Philippians, near the end of his life, he says, not that I've attained all of this, and what he was referring to earlier, he says, I want to know Christ. That's a valid thing, isn't it? We want to know Jesus, right? I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Yet I have not already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The Lord is moving me and you if we know Him. He's moving us ever closer to know Christ and to be like Jesus. And we are being transformed. That's awesome, isn't it? Is it great to be a child of God? It's just unbelievable. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that people who do not know you yet, who have been here today, will have a growing hunger to know you. And even some would come to know you today as they say in their heart, Lord, I want to know you this way. I hunger for you. I pray that they would give their lives to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.